my name is Dave Hollenbach, the host of From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. I've found that it isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how we respond. Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Shireen McHenry. She is the author of Navigate, Understanding the Five Types of People. As a former graduate professor with a deep understanding of people, Dr. Shireen saves companies and organizations the time, money, and work it takes to gain such knowledge by sharing simple, achievable steps to obtain the results they desire and deserve. Businesses boost their engagement, productivity, and profitability. Individuals enjoy healthier relationships, enhanced well-being and mental health, and greater success in and out of the workplace. Known as the People IQ expert, Shireen has empowered thousands of audiences throughout North America, as well as in South America and Asia. Shireen holds a PhD in counselor education and is a certified speaking professional, a licensed professional counselor. And uh, like I said, she's the author of Navigate. Well, let me read the titles. Uh, I mean, like she's written so many books uh, navigate, understanding the five types of people, pick, choose to create a life you love, seven ways to get your team fully empowered and engaged. Uh, oh, so that's a guidebook. The to, uh, seven ways to get your team fully empowered and engaged guidebook, the busy student's guide to college and career success. And she's got a syndicated column uh, addressing leadership and workplace issues. She's a member of the National Speakers Association and past president of the Michigan National Speakers Association. So the, the state chapter. Um, now I'm gonna have a link to her website in the show notes. So, you know, at the end of the, uh, the podcast, you know, I'd like you to list your, you know, your favorite links to send people to. So. Um, we'll get to that a little bit later, but uh, man, I, I've been so excited about this conversation. We talked a little bit a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I just, I'm so happy to have you on the show. Thank you so much for, for agreeing to have this conversation with me. Thank you for allowing me to. I've been excited about this as well. I admire, respect, and appreciate you, and my greatest joy is helping people have happier lives, healthier relationships, and be more effective in and out of the workplace. So I just know we'll have a fascinating conversation. Yeah, I, I want to learn a little more about you. Um, going back to your early life, like where were you born and raised and, and who were some of the early influences in your life? So I was born in a little town in Ohio, Dover, Ohio, and my parents were my biggest influences. They loved us and made sure that we had everything that we needed and always, always lived their values. They cared about their faith, they cared about family, and they cared about education. And so they set us up, my brother, my sister, and I, to follow the dreams of our hearts. And it took me a long time to figure out what I wanted to do and some missteps, which I think that happens to a lot of us. But I eventually found my way into realizing that I cared deeply about people and relationships. And then I decided to get my doctorate in counseling. And then I became a professor and was a semi-happy professor. I looked enough like them. They let me in the horse pen, but I was a zebra. So mm. what I cared about, they kind of can, and what they cared about, I was just like, 
Um, so it wasn't a great fit, but I loved working with the students. But when I found speaking, I went, oh my gosh, this is really cool. And so I love that listening to the heart and to what just emanates with us and gives us joy. And so that's a kind of fast forward through small town Dover through today. After you, well, let's see, what, what kind of a teenager were you? Did you play sports or were you involved in any clubs? I was a president of student government. I was a varsity cheerleader and I was a gymnast. And all I ever wanted to be when I grew up was a cheerleader and a gymnast. And I didn't realize, but again, those were clues. I like being in front of an audience. I like people paying attention to me and I always felt a little bad about that. Like I was needy, but really it was just a clue as to what I was put on the planet for. But that said, even though I had this external success, I had really low self-esteem and so I was pretty shy and faded into the woodwork and didn't think I was very deserving of anything, which is again one of the reasons that I'm passionate about helping people overcome those things that hold them back from shining and being who they are. Isn't it interesting like this so many times the most successful people have this this hidden side where they're just they don't feel deserving. I mean, do we ever really feel deserving of accolades when we get them, you know, unless, you know, it's, it's something pretty amazing. Like, here's I, what I think is that the things that I've worked very hard to acquire like I used to have the imposter syndrome. And so I was always afraid somebody would uncover me and they would realize that I didn't know what I was doing and that they wouldn't like me if they got to know me. Once I did my mental health work and then went and worked on my doctorate, I worked so hard for that knowledge base that I'm like, yeah, I actually think I'm deserving of what I get now. Yeah. Before I didn't, but now it's like, no, I've worked really, really hard because I believe that competent confidence, true confidence is based on competence and yeah. competence is based on hard work. And when we are cheated out of competence because we're charming, we skate by, we game the system for whatever reason, we rob ourselves of deep confidence. And so one of the things as a professor, I really wanted my students to have confidence based on competence because I didn't want them to suffer in the same way that I had. Did you go to college right, right out of high school? Yeah, my family was, it wasn't if you were going to college, it was where you were going to go to college. So I went to a small private school in North Carolina absolutely loved it. One woman in particular became a mentor and poured into me and then gave me some great career advice. I wanted to work at a college. She's like, hey, you need to get a master's degree because otherwise you can only move laterally in higher education. So I went and got my master's degree and then I'm doing a job I'm very ill-suited to. I'm a people person. Math is my weakest suit. Now I'm writing grants. I have no confidence. It's just a terrible career fit. And so I'm not working out of my patient base. I'm not working out of my strengths. And pretty quickly, I become depressed. And so I found my way to counseling by the grace of God, to be quite honest. And that radically changed my life. And I began to tell myself, what I did and didn't like and to stand up for myself a bit. And one of the things that I had fallen in love with was the light bulb of learning. And that's when I went and I did my doctorate. And so was out at the University of Wyoming for that. And my dream was to be a professor. And so I became a professor and became a tenured full professor, but I was never super happy at it. I mean, it was a good job. I was good at doing, I was successful. And I would imagine some of your listeners are that way. And I had those golden handcuffs. So I wanted to be a speaker. I had been invited to fill in for somebody at a conference and I said yes without thinking one of those people, everything sounds good in the moment, but Dave, oh my gosh, 30 minutes after I was asked to fill in, I went, what was I thinking? When I was in ninth grade in my speech class, the only one I ever took, I got up and I got the borderline hysterical giggles that only a 14-year-old teenage girl can get. And my 
teacher yelled at me. He's like, sit down and take an F. And <laughs> that sobered me really quickly. And I remember walking back to my, I can still feel the emotion of it. I remember walking back to my desk and just feeling the shame and the embarrassment. I had never been yelled at by a teacher. I'd never failed anything. My parents were teachers. Education was a big deal in my family. And I sat there and I put my head down and this tear came down my cheek and I said, I don't like to speak. But what I really didn't like was being shamed and bullied and uh, he would be a hacker out of my book. And, but I didn't have the ability to know that or to say that or to advocate for myself. And so here I say yes to this speaking engagement. I'm now anxious for two months, but I didn't want to say no because I always want to be a person of character. And if I tell you I'm going to do something, then I'm going to follow through. And so the event happened and I made people laugh and it was just like, oh my gosh, I know you know that feeling. This is fun. And part of me woke up that had never been awake before. And so for a long time, people would say, will you come and speak for my group? And I'd be like, sure. And then one day somebody said, well, what would it cost to have you come in? I'm like, you can get paid to do this. <laughs> I had no idea. And then it took me a while and I figured out people made a living doing it. And for me, the hardest part was learning how to be a businesswoman. I have some real natural skills on a platform. I've worked very hard to hone those, but I'm the child of educators, no entrepreneurs in my family. And so I began this journey of trying to learn how to crack into a business that I couldn't understand. And I joined the National Speakers Association, and then I got a coach to really help me navigate the business end of things. And 11 and a half years ago, I left the university and I've been out on my own and I've never looked back and I've never been happier, but it's the scariest decision I ever made. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, I, I'm, I, I wanna dig into your book and is navigate your most recent work? It is. So it's a book that faith is a big part of my life and the five love languages radically changed my life. I don't know if you're familiar with those, Dr. Gary Chapman's work. He actually was a professor of mine in college, although he doesn't even remember teaching the class. He was an adjunct professor. Anyway, radically changed my life. And it was like this veil was lifted from my eyes and I began to see that love existed for me when I had thought I wasn't loved or lovable. And so my prayer was that God would give me something as simple and profound as the five love languages that would enhance and transform relationships around the globe. And he gave me five types of people, high flyers, steady gliders, lackers, slackers, and hackers. And you want to know all five because you need to be equipped for all five. Most of us assume that the world is like us and then we get disappointed by people, we write them off, or we're ill-equipped to deal with people who are meaner and more vicious than us. Yeah. Well, can you, can you go through e yeah. each one of those? I'm, I'm really curious. So the high flyers are hardworking, driven, reliable, conscientious, they would rather die than let somebody down and they would rather not show up than to be late. And so these people, just everything they do, they do it to the highest extent. I read a quote the other day by Sandra Day O'Connor and basically what she said, and I'm gonna butcher it, so I apologize, was in whatever you do, no matter how small, do the very best that you can do. And that is the mantra of the high flyer, do everything with excellence. And so they're most at risk for burnout. They are rewarded for their hard work with more hard work. They need to learn how to say no. They need to learn how to advocate for themselves and they need to be rewarded for their success. I was speaking at a conference a month or so ago, and I said, hey, if you were to leave your job and it would take two or three people to replace you, that's a problem. You are overworking and somebody is either inadvertently or willingly taking advantage of your generosity and your hard work. He came up to me and he said, I worked for this organization. He said it took them five people to replace me. He said, now I work for myself. And he said, 
everything that I do now is for me and for the people that I serve. He said, I've never been happier. And so oftentimes these are just incredible entrepreneurs because they can captain their own ship. So high flyers, first cousin of those are the steady gliders, reliable, conscientious, hardworking, but they're not driven in the same way. They're not competitive. They don't have to be the best. They don't want to be the the front, they like to be the support people. So they don't want to be the president, they want to be the team member. And they are values driven. And so it's almost always family and their community and their patients. And my hunch is you're probably a high flyer based on your book, as well as all your your work with the patients that you have with Habitat for Humanity and with your soldiers. And my hunch is you're a high flyer and a steady glider, but steady gliders, they get a job, they chunk it out, they know what it takes. And what a steady glider wants is life balance. And in most cases, they want to go to work at eight, they want to be done at five, and then they don't want to think about it until the next morning, because there are other things that are important to them. So then you have lackers, all of us can be a lacker, and we just keep running into the same brick wall. And so we either need more knowledge, or we need to change how we're thinking. So I think back to in my first job, terrible, terrible fit. I'm becoming depressed. I'm not doing my job functions. And my boss in her infinite wisdom says, Shireen, I'm going to send you to a Franklin time management seminar. And I said, well, okay. And I went and it was expensive. And they gave me this beautiful binder I've never used. And it didn't work because what they gave me was skill training and knowledge, but they didn't capture what was wrong. Like had she said, what's wrong, Shireen, you're not happy. And to be honest, you're letting me and the staff and the students down, you're not pulling your weight. I probably would have cried. Good thing is tears are not contagious. We said, I don't know what's wrong. And then she could have said, go get some help, figure out what you want to do. If this isn't the right job, I will help you find a job that is a better fit for you. But I need you to perform and to figure this out. So anytime that we're caught and running into the same problem more than once, we either need skill set training, it's a skill set problem, or mindset. And that's a counselor, a coach, um, somebody who can actually help us sort through the rubble of our life so that we can change. And then, so that's high flyer, steady glider, lacquer. The next one is called slacker, but that's a derogatory term. That's what the rest of the world calls people who don't pull their weight and who drop the ball. But Slackers are really rockets 99.9% .9 of the time. So high flyer gets a job. They immediately start working on it. They don't feel good until the job is done. And then they want to breathe. And then they usually just get more work. The rocket gets a job and they think about it, but they don't do anything. And they think about it some more and they don't do anything. And if you say, hey, how's that coming? They go, I'm working on it. And you may not say it out loud, but you think, no, you're not. If you were working on it, I would see some progress. Um, but what they mean is I'm thinking about it. So rockets are always thinking. So when a deadline comes, they always need a countdown. They just need a deadline. And something activates in their brain, just like a rocket, the fuels begin to mix as the deadline approaches. And it is their preferred and most effective work environment is to work under the gun. They start thinking better. They're forced into making decisions and they can get it done. So with a rocket, deadlines are imperative and they also need quality control because most rockets will go, oh, I've been working on that a long time. If it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. And so they sometimes turn in subpar work. So you might wonder how I know so much about a rocket because I am a rocket. So I have matured. I realize that my behavior impacts other people. And for me, I, I was a broken rocket. I was raised by a high flyer who couldn't figure me out or how to motivate me. The messages that I got inadvertently are that I was lazy and I'm not lazy. I'll work harder than anyone I know, but a deadline has to come. And so I'm like, how... It took me forever to figure this out. I used to think, how can I be successful? How can I get a PhD, write books, and have this success and not be able to accomplish the simplest of things? And one day it occurred to me, oh, 
everything I've ever accomplished has an external deadline. I'm not going to let you down and I'm not going to embarrass myself. So that's a rocket in a nutshell. And then there are hackers. And so the hackers are people who either are lacking conflict resolution skills, they're a lacquer hacker, they're a covert hacker, they do it behind your back, they gossip, they create drama, they pit people against each other. It's very cancerous. You won't recognize it until there are symptoms and the symptoms are distrust and people starting to bite at each other. And there's just a huge problem, but it's again, all behind your back. And then there are the overt hackers and they do it right in front of your face. They are sarcastic, they blow up, they bully, they manipulate. They again, love drama and pitting people against each other. And the research in the US says that five to 7% of our population has what's called a personality disorder, which means they lack empathy. They don't take responsibility. These people run the table before somebody who isn't a hacker even knows there's a game. And so they're always currying favor about two levels above you because they know that at one point somebody's going to say she's a problem and the boss is going to go, they're phenomenal. What are you talking about? And what leaders really need to realize is that people treat leaders and people in positions of authority different than they treat their peers and the people under them. And so if you've had a loyal person who's now saying there's a problem and you go, there's no problem, they're perfect. You may want to dial that back and start looking at if you've been groomed, they're coming, they're now your best friend, they're coming to your child's sporting events, there isn't anything they won't do for you, but when you're not around, um, perhaps they're blowing up and belittling. So those are the five in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah I, I could see uh, several of those applying to me and then uh, definitely have known quite a few hackers uh unfortunately well and we can all be a hacker my sister years ago on vacation she's like well that's a passive aggressive remark and i did hacker behavior and i said no i was just joking and then she went into the house and i started thinking and i'm like that was a passive aggressive remark and i went in and apologized every it's just an indicator that something is wrong so the mentally healthy person who doesn't have a personality disorder says "Ooh, this is a problem um what do I need to change? What do I need to ask for? I'm mad at somebody. I'm not getting what I want or think that I deserve. And so we can be all of them. The one that I'm the least of, I've, I'm a really well-defined rocket. And then I'm a high flyer in my chosen endeavors, endeavors. So I call myself a high performance rocket. So if I'm on a stage, I want to be the best speaker you ever hire and the easiest one you ever work with. If I write a book, it's going to be well-written and it's going to be an easy read full of information. The things that I care about, it's a pretty narrow band, but they get 150% of my attention and effort. But unlike my mother, who will give that to everything, Sandra Day O'Connor, who will give that to everything, I care about probably 10% of the world and then the rest I'm ready to go play and have fun. So you mentioned the, the love languages. Yeah. And so I'm familiar with that. And, you know, I, I've struggled with PTSD and I've went to many different counselors trying to find one that could understand what I was struggling with. And um, I've read a lot of books that were recommended. And one, it was um, so Codependent No More. And then there's the, uh, the book Attached. So there's all these different schools of thought and different kind of personality types that um, it just is really interesting to me where one school of thought is, you know, codependence is bad. And then another school of thought is like, well, you know, we're, we're meant to be in a social construct. We, you know, we do rely on one another. Um, teamwork is better than, you know, attacking uh, an issue by yourself. So there is the, the toxic codependence that, you know, you don't want to 
have that. But when you start painting things with that broad brush, like any kind of codependence is bad. And like, if I'm feeling bad and it's because you hurt my feelings, that's my problem. And, you know, you don't own any of the responsibility because I hate that. I have always hated that when people go, nobody can make me, you feel mad. I'm like, your behavior is egregious. Of yeah. course I'm mad. So to me, the word, and again, this isn't out of the literature or if it is, I'm not, I'm going to butcher it, but I don't want to be codependent. I've been that. And I too am a trauma survivor. And so I have a great deal of empathy for that. I want to be interdependent. I want rich relationships where I give and you take and we work together and I want to be happy and I want you to be happy. I recognize that we win and we lose together when we're on a team. We're not enemies. And so I would like rich interdependence, but I've been codependent and it wasn't a very good for me. And so I don't know if that resonates with how you feel. Oh, yeah, no, I absolutely. hate when people tell me I can't, nobody can make you mad. I'm like, mm, let's think about that. You just lied to me. And this, I think that it's okay to have emotions. And I think that it's my responsibility if I stay angry. It's my responsibility if I say something. It's my responsibility if I stew and I get depressed and turn inward. All of that is my responsibility, but I'm a human being. I have reactions to what happens around me and I'm going to let you down. You're going to let me down, but is your intent to wound me? Is it to send a message or is it because you're a fallible human being? And I, I surround my life with healthy individuals. They let me down. I let them down, but it's an anomaly. It's not an ongoing um, problem. So kind of thinking of a friend once who she would take jabs at me. She was a hacker and she was a lacquer hacker. So she wouldn't ask for what she needed. And I said to her, when you speak to me that way, it hurts my feelings. If there's a problem, tell me, I'll work through you with it. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. And then she behaved for a little bit and then she did it again. And we had the same conversation and she, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'll do better. And she did it again. And I, I just looked at her and I'm like, I've, I've told you this twice. I'm, I'm not going to have this conversation with you again. If you want to be my friend, then tell me when there's a problem. But if you're going to take jabs at me, I didn't have a label for it then, but if you're going to be a hacker, you don't get to be my friend. I'm not going to hate you, but I'm not going to have you taking bites out of my flesh and making me feel bad. Um, that's not who I'm going to let close to my life. Um, so I want really good boundaries and, you know, we don't always get to pick our workplace people. And I was talking to my parents yesterday and I had just, uh, unhealthy, mentally unhealthy bully hacker in the workplace. And I said, you know, I'm really glad as painful as it was, I needed her so that I could understand that hackers exist and to be motivated to figure out what it is that we need to do with hackers. Because I was just really ill-equipped for her. And I think most nice people are, unless you've learned conflict resolution skills, and then you understand that there are unreasonable people out there who cannot be reasoned with, who delight, and it is sport for them. And so I always look at it as a hacker. If I'm a going to make one of two choices. If I have the ability to problem solve, which I have as a leader, which I had in that case as a friend, I will solve this problem. Or if I don't have the power to problem solve, I've learned, having been a lacquer who didn't get it, to move quickly into problem management. And management is how do I mitigate the effects? How do I protect my team? How do I protect my business? I don't have the luxury of uncoupling my life from you, but I'm not going to be at the end of your poor mental health and vindictive behaviors that actually wound and they create unhealthy work environments and unhealthy relationships. And when we get involved with hackers, our energy is turned inward because we have to figure out what just happened and what our part of it is. And then we also have to look at how do we protect ourselves moving forward. And what I want in my personal life, what I work on organizations with is 
let's go ahead and take care of hackers and have psychologically safe workplaces so that we can flourish, so that our energy goes toward solving problems, toward creating a better tomorrow, toward moving things forward instead of self-protection. Bringing up like the, the book Attached, where you know that talks about the different attachment styles, like anxious attachment, um, secure attachment, and then there's uh, the avoidant yep. attachment style. So anybody can be any one of those depending on the circumstances, but um, you know there are certain people, and I'm one of them, that uh, I've had this anxious attachment style in a lot of my relationships and uh, you know, I'm 48 years old now and I'm like finally understanding like the roots of that and being able to recognize like, Hey, this isn't, you know, this, cause you know, we tell ourselves stuff that, that cognitive distortions and it's just when we can recognize that we're telling ourselves a, a false story, uh, creating a false narrative to what's going on, then, um, you know, we can have healthier relationships. And, and so when you're describing the, the five types of people, and this is in the context of being a leader or understanding the people that you're working with and how best to develop those relationships. And before you can ever understand other people, you have to have a firm grasp of who you are and what makes you tick. Certainly helps. Yeah. I love that you're a curious learner and I love your authenticity. And I, I think two, two things come to mind and I love this conversation we're having. You and I are both trauma victims. Um, I had a roommate who was raped and murdered. She happened to be a very dear friend. It wasn't just a roommate. I lost somebody I loved to suicide. Um, I lived through a hurricane. There have been some other things in my life that have happened. And I could not grapple with those on my own. Most of us who are traumatized need an outside source. And so one of the best decisions I ever made was to go work with a trauma therapist. I had known after my roommate was killed that I needed help. I was in horrible shape and I tried counseling and what I didn't realize is that a counselor who isn't trained in trauma is going to re-traumatize a trauma victim. And so with the first counselor, I just no-showed a couple of times. So I didn't want to do it, but I wasn't saying I didn't want to do it. And my boss saw me as a lacquer and said, you're, you're still a mess. You need to go get some more help, Shereen. And so I went and found another counselor and I worked with them, I think three times. And then I finally just said, I'm not going to work with you anymore. And she's like, why not? You need help. And I don't think I, I do think I said it out loud, come to think of it. I'm like, but not from you. Um, <laughs> because, because she, she didn't do it. She wasn't malicious, malicious, but she re-traumatized me every single time we were together. And trauma victims are, we're just working on surviving and trying not to be re-traumatized. And so it took me nine years to find a trauma therapist and she reset my sense of safety. And then when the person I loved suicided, I went to see another trauma therapist and she got rid of the horrific images in my head, which then freed me up. And then I've been working with a holistic chiropractor who's done some really deep trauma work for me. His he believes that the body keeps score, which is Vanderbeek's book, The Body Keeps Score, and that um, it comes out in physical health problems. And so he's done some really deep work that I didn't know that I needed. And as I work with him on doing the deeper layers of the trauma that were so embedded that I didn't have access to them, I have more joy. I have more hope. I have more energy. I am able to chase my dreams. And I think if we were going to give a gift to your listeners, I think our hearts for them would be, you don't have to walk trauma alone if you could figure stuff out on your own, you would do it. Traumatized people 
we have suffered these incredible blows that our brains cannot comprehend. And there are incredibly trained people out there who can help us get from point A to point B. You're not lazy. You're not, you're not a bad person. You're not unreliable. You're traumatized and you're going to have some behaviors that are going to keep you from enjoying the success that you want. And so hackers can traumatize people. That's literally, I was joking with my parents yesterday about the hacker working with the holistic chiropractor saying, we were working on that hacker, getting me untraumatized. She was traumatizing. I was ill-equipped for her. And I, I don't know, my heart, I think yours as well with the work that you do is, especially men and women who have served our country. Oh my gosh. Um, you gave everything and then you came back to a world that wasn't equipped for you and you didn't know how to deal with it. And you've done the best you can. You're a warrior and a survivor. I wasn't in the military, but I was a survivor and I fought really hard and so many areas of my life were good, but there was just this huge crater that I had to walk around all the time. And I'm just grateful. I got the help that I needed because what I want to be is I don't want to be a hacker and I don't want to be a victim. A victim. I want to be an empowered person who achieves my dreams, who at the end of my life, I get to say, I'm so glad I did. What a rich life. I don't want to say I wish I would have because I was traumatized, because I had fear, because I never got the help that I needed to figure it out. So I think it's hardest for warriors. And I think the narrative is changing, but firefighters like you, soldiers like you, and um, your fiance, I think those are the ones that are hardest to ask for help because we can do it on our own. That's kind of in, in the American psyche. And I think particularly in the people who fight on the front lines. So yeah. I don't know how that resonates with you. Did any of that ping? Oh yeah. Yeah. No, you're, you're spot on. And it, that kind of leads me to my next question where when you're working with an organization and you're, you're teaching teams the, the five different types of people and how to recognize them, how do, you, how do you work with the teams that you work with in, well, identifying the, the different types of people is one thing, but how do you identify them and then motivate them or work with them on their level? How do you bring the team together to achieve the mission? So I think that by and large, we just want to understand. So if I don't have a vocabulary, if I can't name it, I can't make good decisions. And so I think that these five types are pretty simplistic. Like every time I talk and my hunch is you did the same thing, you go, oh, that's Shireen. Oh, that's so-and-so. Oh, that's so-and-so. Oh, that's why they do that. So your brain automatically begins to make some sense out of things. I think my observation has been that everyone loves me. High flyers love me because I advocate so much for taking care of themselves and for organizations not burning them out. Because again, they just get rewarded with more work and they, get, they become hackers because they're angry because they know that they're doing far more than their share. And then steady gliders, it's like, let's see them, let's mentor them, let's figure out what they need. Let's, when we give them a new assignment, let's hold their hand and walk them through the process because these people have so much to give, but they're often overlooked. And then lackers, okay, mindset, skill set. Okay, that, when you say to me, mindset, skill set, I can do that. Either I'm going to need some training or I'm going to need to do some work. And those, to me, that, that is so much better than running into the same brick wall. I think back to this colleague who tormented me for 15 years. I had a faculty, everybody would go quiet when she would begin her bullying and her posturing. And on the strength finder, one of my greatest strengths is do the right thing. And so I would try and stand up to her and I felt like mighty mouse, you know, I'm this little thing, she's this big cat. And I would, I would stand up to her and the entire rest of the faculty would go silent and kind of put their heads down. And my interpretation was that they were weak and that they let her get away with 
a lot of crap and that somebody needed to defend the students and say something. And if nobody else was going to do it, then I would do it. And a woman came onto our faculty and one day she looked at me and she's like, why do you do it? I'm like, do what? She's like, you take the bait every time. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> she's like, she dangles the bait. You take it every single time. I went, hmm, I'm going to have to think about that. Thanks for the feedback. And I went away and I didn't even have a replacement behavior, but because she pointed out the pattern to me, I went back into the next meeting and instead of taking her on, and then she would bat me about with her claws and I would be bloodied. And then she'd just sit there and lick my blood off of her claws. Um, I just went quiet and it puttered out. And that was really fascinating because the next week we go in and she's like, my daddy always says when you're the one who loses it, you're the one who loses. And I went, that is not a freaking apology, but she didn't like looking like a jerk when I didn't join in the fray. It helps when somebody can just point out the pattern is what I'm saying there. Yeah. Um, rockets are vilified in the workplace. People want to vote them off the island. They're just mismanaged. Um, deadlines and quality control. Once you know that and you start putting in buffers, they can perform. Oh my gosh. And rockets have this wisdom because rockets are always asking themselves, what's the easiest, quickest way to do this? And so they get a reputation as being lazy because they figure out the quickest way to do something. The wise leader goes, oh my gosh, what if we could replicate that? And we want this person on our team because there's going to be emergencies and they just go boom, 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 boom. We can solve that, but we need them to do their job. And then again, we just have to make sure that hackers are not destroying our work environments. And so when I go in and I offer this information, everybody loves me, but the hackers and the hackers, I think they hate it because it's like pulling back the curtain on the Wizard of Oz that if you can't name it, they can run the show. But the minute you point out the pattern, people go, oh, I get it. And then they'll just come after you in an unhealthy environment. I've had them come after me. Um, and it's like, whoa, this is a really dysfunctional environment. And these hackers are running the show because leadership is letting them do that because leadership is going silent. And so we need strong leaders and we can have these incredible work environments. So to me, it's naming it is a big thing, giving people options. For most of us, if we can just name it and have a couple strategies, then we can begin to navigate through things. But if you can't name it, I just would noodle it and I couldn't figure it out, so I just put it away. And then it would come back up and I'd noodle it, but I couldn't figure it out, so I just put it away. And that just takes so much time and energy and robs us of, again, chasing our dreams, ultimately achieving what we want to achieve. As you were describing all these types of people, I could pick them out. I, I mean, I was in the Navy in the early 90s, and that was the, my early introduction into um, bad leadership. Um, yeah, there's dysfunctional teams. I mean, you've got people from all walks of life and they're just like, they put them together and, you know, authoritarian leadership. And, uh, and you have all those types of people trying to navigate their way and, and figure out how to work together. Um, and, and it was difficult, but then what I have the most experience in is the fire department and the fire service, small teams and large teams, not being able to, to choose your team is tough. It is. And I think that's the thing. Maya Angelou says, when people tell you who they are, believe them the first time. And so here's what I like to do now is I believe with all my heart, they may not tell you in, in an interview, but a team will tell you who they are and a leader will tell you who they are and colleagues will tell you who they are. And so I'm gonna try now, if I'm not the established leader twice to solve things, but if I can't solve them in two times, then I'm gonna move quickly into problem management. And 
I, that may mean that I choose to work somewhere else. And it may mean that I choose to stay there, but the cost is so high to stay in a toxic environment. So I was thinking in the military, there are incredible leaders and incredible teams. And some of it is the luck of the draw of the leader. And my one of my mantras is, is as the leader goes, so goes the team. If the leader isn't healthy, the team isn't healthy. If the leader is absent, the team will run amok and people are just scrambling. And so to me, it all comes down to, oh my gosh, we need good leadership. It's one of the reasons I love working with leaders is because their sphere of influence is so great. And so if we can equip leaders to say, not on my watch, we're not doing that anymore. I'm not going to burn out my high flyers. I'm going to mentor and I'm going to honor my steady gliders. When somebody's having a problem, I'm either going to get them mindset training or skill set training. And again, we give them skill set training. They self-select into what they need to do to figure out what the problem is. If it's a racket, I'm going to have deadlines and really good quality control because you're part of a team and you can't be dragging a team down. You got to be a high performance racket. And if there's a hacker, not on my watch. And if leaders will step up and do that, we can have incredible teams. But if the leader is not a good leader, sometimes there are good teams, but for the most part, they run amok and bad behavior left unchecked grows. My mentor said that, Dr. Brenda Freeman. And she told me that 30 years ago, and it's just as true 30 years ago as it is today. Bad behavior left unchecked grows. Yeah. I developed uh, a leadership program for the department I was with, and I took a lot of it from leadership training from the military. Uh, I mean, the United States Armed Forces, they've got a pretty good system in place to develop leaders, but they also have a system in place that when you are not successful at becoming a good leader, you're out. So, I mean, I think some of them squeak by here and there, but it doesn't last, it doesn't endure. Um, Whereas in the fire department, the reason that I took on this, this role of building a leadership program is because there wasn't one. I moved up in the ranks without ever taking a leadership class. And then the leadership class that got implemented, you know, it was, thankfully, I ended up getting the backing of the fire chief and it got funded and it was implemented to where on day one, you are introduced to leadership. When you get hired on the department, you get introduced because nobody knows you know, if you're wearing a uniform, they don't know if it's your first day or if you've been on the job 10 years. If you tell them to do something, they're going to do it in, a, in an emergency, you know. Um, I felt like it was never laid out for me that way when I first got on the job, that I needed to behave like a leader. I needed yeah. to start looking at myself as though I was a leader. And and work really hard at developing my leadership skills. And so building that program and implementing it and having different stages for the different ranks, um, you know, stepping stones that like, once you get through this gauntlet or this skill packet, or, you know, you have exhibited these types of behaviors, then, you get to go to the next level. Well, and I think so much that I heard it put the other day, your mess becomes your mission, that you kind of inherited a mess. You saw that in the military, in your unit, Um, you're in a fire department, there's no training there. We have historically companies are going to promote people because they're good workers. But if you don't train them how to be good leaders, they're set up for failure and the people under them are. And you oftentimes have taken them out of a job that they love and they don't have the skill set or the knowledge 
set yet to be a good leader. And so I think we do people an incredible injustice. And it's one of the things that I get excited about with your book, because you've lived this, you've created it, you've got a proven path and success. And I love that your chief was smart enough to allow a young whippersnapper who cared to create something incredible that has then blessed a community and blessed a fire department. Good leadership. I was in Italy a couple of years ago, just before the pandemic. And I was in the town of Siena and there are these murals that are very, very famous. And one of them is a mural of good government. And one of them is a mural of bad government. And I think we can apply this to leadership. When there's good government, when there's good leadership, people flourish. There's prosperity, there's order, there's all these blessings that come with it. But when leadership is lacking, when leadership is poor, when leadership has evil intent, um, the people suffer. And I think it's the same way in the workplace. And it's, I think goes beyond government. And I think whoever painted that and hundreds of years ago was so wise, but I think it's applicable to today. And I've had great leaders. And then I've had leaders who I just shut down and I, how do I survive this? And when do I pull the parachute and get out of here? And again, for me to leave a tenured full professorship was a pretty scary thing. And I did it because I wanted to move toward my dream of being a full-time professional speaker, but I was in such a toxic environment. I went and asked my leader, my, our boss, for help. And I said, hey, it's a hostile work environment. I need your help. What do you want me to do? <laughs> I, that's literally, I'm not exaggerating. I said, well, when it turns um, unprofessional, I would love for you to say the tone of this conversation is no longer professional in nature. Fine. That's literally, that was our conversation. I got up and left. I went to the faculty, next faculty meeting. This is how she started it. Some of you need to develop a little thicker skin and some of you need to play nicer in the sandbox. And I just went, oh dear God, there is no help in this quarter. And it was so, so toxic that logic had no point anymore. It was just, there was no logic. And I literally, I'm so grateful that I was on my way out because I don't know what it would have done to my mental health had I chosen to stay there. It was already extracting a toll. Um, and this is what I love is good people, hard workers, high flyers, steady gliders, and high performance rockets. Oh my gosh, there are so many opportunities open to you. Um, systems are more powerful than individuals. Try to change the system. But if you can't, quickly move into problem management and there will be people all over looking for wonderful hard workers like you. And I just want people to know that they have choices and entrepreneurs to go, I can be a blessing to myself and to my family. I have to figure this out, but I can do this. Like that man who traded five jobs basically to be his own boss. There's just, we always have choices, but I think when we're traumatized, we don't see the choices as much and that, that we're just already operating from a traumatized um, standpoint, which makes it a lot harder to navigate them. What you said about the murals really made me think of the way the leadership was when the, the chief that I told you about, you know, backed the leadership program and then uh, a new mayor came in and that amazing fire chief was asked to resign. Uh, and they put in uh, a chief that really had no business being in that position and the environment got toxic almost overnight. And it is the leader. The leader has the power. It's, it's literally amazing. The leader can change an environment on a dime for good and they can change an environment on a dime for poor, uh, poorer. I don't even know what the grammatical term is, but they'll either make it better or worse. Um, oh my gosh. And then but, you just go, oh my gosh, what, why? And 
what struck me about the analogy with the murals is there is the leadership that empowers and the leadership that tries to hoard the power. Yep. You hit it on the nose and that those people who hoard it, they intimidate, they manipulate and everyone suffers and the organization suffers and those who empower grow and everything multiplies. It's we have choices, but sometimes we've been in such dysfunctional environments like that one was clear. It was good. It went bad really quickly. That one's like easy to see, but sometimes we've been in such dis destructive relationships or work environments that we we would never willingly put ourselves into that but we find ourselves in it because it just changed bit by bit by bit and so i'm back to when people tell you who they are believe them the first time i think maya angelo is brilliant people will tell you who they are organizations will tell you who they are believe them and then navigate your way to a better space. You know, with this great resignation that we're in the middle of right now and the pendulum, it sounds like from what I'm reading is starting to swing back. I think a lot of people just went, I can't take the toxicity anymore. I can't take the doing four jobs and getting paid for one. I want a life balance. And I just think if we can create environments where people are valued, the turnover is really low because why would you wanna go anywhere else? You're working for a greater good. You're working well together. You feel valued. You're not having to self-protect and hide or figure stuff out. Yeah. This is all on the leader, but we as the members get a lot of say um, as to if we feel like we're stuck there, um, I, figure out what it takes to get somewhere better because the years are going to pass. And in North America, we by and large think that we can separate our personal life from our work life. And if work is really bad, we think we can just go home. And the research says that's not true. We take it home with us. And life is really, really short and health is really precious and really dysfunctional environments destroy our well-being, our happiness, and can destroy our physical health. And so I really want people to advocate for themselves, take care of themselves, and um, be wonderful leaders. But tell yourself the truth. Problem solve if you have the power. Problem manage. And if that means getting out of there, um, build your runway and get out of there as quickly as possible. The worst thing though anybody can do is go, I can't take this anymore and they quit. They have no savings, they have no direction, they have nothing on the line. I'm like, ah, you know, build your <laughs> runway so you don't crash and burn. Um, build your runway and be strategic, captain your ship, navigate it. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to talk with me about everything that you spoke about. Um, Thank you for the privilege. This was fun. I've got this little heart just going and I did think it all ties back to trauma that's why you got to build your runway so you don't crash and have trauma, trauma. <laughs> yeah literally I I had yeah. one person I knew they quit their job when they had five followers on YouTube or on Facebook I'm like they and they've never been able to make it and I'm like well you can't let yourself get so fed up that you have to quit I mean you got to take care of yourself and do whatever it takes, but learn the business. And I've loved this conversation. I, I'm so delighted to have met you, Dave. I appreciate, admire, and respect you, um, your service, your heart for equipping leaders, and uh, your formula for doing that. It's just been a real privilege to join you and having a really fun conversation and hopefully enlightening your listeners where all of them can pick out one or two things that they can make work in their life. And I just think life is short. Let's figure it out so we can be about the business that we're supposed to be on and have a lot of fun doing it. Yeah. So for those listening, <clears throat> what is the best way to connect with you, contact you, learn more about you, buy your books, you know, because I know that there's people out there listening that would like to have you come to their organization, you know, um, come to their place of business and, you know, energize their teams. Um, and then, you know, I know that there's listeners that are like, okay, I got to get that book. 
So you can go to fullyengaged.us. You can email me, Shereen at fullyengaged.us. Um, the books are available on the website. The audiobooks are almost done. The Navigate has an ebook and PIC has a PDF. So we're going to get that transformed into an ebook. But it would be such a privilege to equip your team and to help people better understand people. You know, when we understand ourselves, we can set ourselves up for success. When we understand others, we can set others up for success. And good leadership is a blessing. Let's set our people up for what they need. And you can find me and I'm always a phone call or an email away. Awesome. Thank you so much, Shireen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Follow me on your favorite podcast platform and visit hollenbachleadership.com for additional content. My goal is and always will be to add value to as many people as possible. So if I can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with me via email or on one of my social media accounts linked on the homepage of my website. Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them, and the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.